Hello, my friends. Very interesting news. We start with the news about the big explosion at the Canada-U.S. border near Niagara Falls. Then we talk about the new president of Argentina. What a character he is. And holy mackerel, Geert Wilders in Holland getting more votes than anyone else. He's the anti-immigration party leader. We'll take you through all of those things, but I want to make sure you see the video version of this, because I actually interviewed Herr Bowlers at, at some length a few years ago. I'll play you a clip of that, and I'll also play you clips of this new Argentinian president. I want you to see that with your own eyes. He is a character. Both of them have interesting hair. I'll say that's the commonality between these two men. Cool hair. You got to see it. Sign up at rebelnewsplus.com. It's eight bucks a month. And by the way, we need that money because we don't take any money from Trudeau or we're demonetized by YouTube. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, an explosion at the Canada-U.S. border. Was it terrorism? And Geert Wilders wins the Dutch election. It's November 22nd, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. There was some breaking news this afternoon, an explosion at a Canada-U.S. border crossing. You could see it filmed from a variety of angles. It, it looks shocking, explosive. It looks astonishing. My first reaction, I think most people, was this is obviously terrorism. That wasn't just a car accident. It was high explosives. You can see another version of this uh, incident, the car going at extremely high rates of speed. The FBI quickly put out a statement, and then Canadian authorities put out a statement retweeting the Americans. It was clear that the Americans were way ahead of us in terms of figuring out what was going on and investigating him. Soon, the Ontario police put out this video announcing that a variety of border closings and highways were completely shut down. Take a look at this. We have major issues happening right now at the U.S. borders in the Niagara region. Right now, we currently have the Rainbow Bridge closed in both directions in Niagara Falls. Niagara Regional Police, Parks Police, as well as Canada Border Services are working on an incident in that area. As a result, we also currently have the Fort Erie Peace Bridge closed at the end of the QW, closed to all the crossings coming to or leaving Canada. Uh, we're also in the process right now of closing Highway 405. We are in the process as well of uh, shutting the Queenston-Lewiston Bridge, and uh, you can expect heavy delays in the Niagara area. If you are planning on crossing the border, please uh, delay travel until we know those highways and uh, closures have reopened. I will update you as I get information, but for now, all border crossings in Niagara Region, Fort Erie, Rainbow, and the Queenston-Lewiston Bridge are all closed to traffic coming and going to and from the United States into Canada. We very quickly sent our own Efron Monsanto, our head of video, to the scene to see what was going on. There wasn't a lot to see when he finally got there. The place was locked down. There were plenty of police cars, but of course, the drama was over. Now, early reports said, I think what was plainly obvious at first impressions. It was terrorism. It sure seemed that way. But as of around 5 p.m. today, that explanation has been walked back. And another theory has been proposed that this was 
joy riders that were going at a high rate of speed and fishtailing and the car simply went out of control and exploded. I mean, could be. It certainly uh, seemed like a high explosive event, but that was based on just observations from surveillance cameras. We'll see what the investigations find. But still, we should not ignore the warnings that uh, various intelligence agencies have given. Here's the United Kingdom official advice to travelers going to Canada. Let me quote their advice to their own citizens. Quote, terrorists are very likely to try to carry out attacks in Canada. And then they give details. Attacks could be indiscriminate, including in places visited by foreigners. You should remain aware of your surroundings, keep up to date with local media reports, and follow the advice of local authorities. That's not particularly helpful advice, is it? Now, Trudeau scoffed. He said, oh, there's nothing much to pay attention to here. It's just those Brits. Uh, it's funny, though, because I remember when Justin Trudeau was trying in some ham-fisted way to lash out at Ron DeSantis in Florida, and Trudeau issued his own travel warning. Remember that? Saying that uh, people in Canada should be very careful going to the United States because it was so anti-gay. Trudeau, that's what Trudeau thinks of uh, security advisories. In the meantime, the Brits are saying, be careful of Canada, you'll get blown up. All right, well, if that infrastructure explosion was not a terror attack, well, there have been other attacks on infrastructure. These uh, that uh, happened the other day, blocking the railway, invading companies that have anything to do with Israel, the Saskatchewan legislature was shut down for the first time in over a hundred years by pro-Hamas activists shouting. Here in Toronto, the city's busy, busiest railway station, Union Station, was shut down. Roads are continuously shut down. Events involving the prime minister and cabinet ministers are invaded. I, again, it's hard to credit that these are that happened to succeed, that 100 people can storm an event with the prime minister or senior cabinet ministers, it's hard to imagine that that actually happened without someone in some way facilitating that. I should tell you that whether or not these grassroots pro-Hamas protests that are paralyzing our economy and our infrastructure, none of which have been denounced, arrested, or had ride horses dispatched against them like the peaceful trucker convoy, I should mention, whether or not these pro-Hamas protests are formally directed by Hamas uh, is unknown. Um, but we know it is a crime under the criminal code to participate, facilitate, instruct, or harbor terrorism. Who is behind these acts I've just described? Today, I see that hundreds of uh, school children in Ontario were led out of school to go on a Hitler Youth-style parade, an anti-Semitic-style parade. This obviously was permitted by Doug Ford's education minister, permitted by school principals, but was it also uh, instructed, participated, aided by foreign agents from Iran? And I'm not saying that speculatively, as you saw last week, Global News, hardly a right-wing outlet, did a major expose on the close to 1,000 agents in Canada operating on behalf of the dictatorship of Iran, whipping up anti-Semitic marches. Here's a question for you. Were those schoolchildren 
uh, exited from class and where they marched through the street at the behest of foreign agents. Which of these infrastructure attacks were at the behest of foreign agents? Here's a clip from that global news story. This BC immigration lawyer has spent a lot of time documenting what he says is the huge number of Iranian regime officials and their associates who are in Canada. We have about 700 names right now um, that are either have temporary residence, permanent residence or citizenship that are in Canada and that are somehow regime affiliates. We're still counting, so it's going to be closer to a thousand. So we don't know if the explosions today were terrorism, but we know that a soft burn style of political persuasion is going on. If it rises to the level of terrorism, I'm not sure. I do know that uh, Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky in Alberta was convicted and sentenced uh, to a prison term, although it was time served already, for giving a peaceful sermon to the truckers at the Coots trucker blockade in February 2022. My point is uh, a peaceful pastor giving a sermon, not at the actual border itself, but in a saloon nearby. He was convicted of a crime and given a jail sentence, time already served. And yet you have pro-Hamas extremists uh, doing actual blocking of critical infrastructure and no charges for that. So that's the Canadian way. But I don't know if you saw this. Argentina has a new president, and I can't think of anyone more opposite Trudeau than this guy. His name is Javier Mille, if I'm pronouncing that right. And I frankly hadn't heard of him until recently when Tucker Carlson had a, an interview with him. Here, I want you to watch this uh, clip. It's only a few minutes long, where he calmly, clearly, but with great precision and great intelligence, outlines the perpetual risk to our free society by the woke left progressive movement. It was just this is some of the most interesting three minutes of TV I've seen in a long time. Take a look at Javier Mille talking to Tucker Carlson a few weeks before his election win. Socialism has become uh, ascendant, really, in the United States, as you may have noticed, with the attendant symptoms you described. Massive public debt levels, increasing poverty, disorder, crime, filth, and ugliness. Argentina is at the end stage of that. Argentina is now a poor country because of those policies. What advice would you give to Americans having lived it? Que nunca abracen las ideas del socialismo. Que nunca se dejen seducir por el canto de las sirenas de la justicia social. Que no se dejen atrapar por esa frase nefasta que donde hay una ansiedad nace un derecho. Pero que eso no se hace solo. Para eso hay que estar preparado y hay que dar la batalla cultural día a día. Y que hay que tener cuidado porque ellos no tienen problema en meterse adentro del Estado y aplicar las técnicas de Gramsci, seduciendo a artistas, seduciendo, o sea, la cultura seduciendo a los medios de comunicación eh, o metiéndose en los contenidos de la educación. Hay que tener mucho cuidado, hay que cortarles el financiamiento y hay que com hacerlos competir a la par. Y al mismo tiempo hay que concientizar a los empresarios 
de que es necesario que más allá... Milton Friedman decía que la, la función social del empresario era ganar dinero. Bueno, con eso solo no alcanza. Parte de la inversión tiene que ser invertir en los defensores de las ideas de la libertad para que los socialistas no puedan avanzar porque si no lo hacen, ellos se van a meter en el Estado y desde el Estado van a, in, van a imponer una agenda que a la, a, de largo plazo va a terminar destruyendo todo lo que toca. Entonces, ahí digamos, es necesario un fuerte compromiso de todos los creadores de riqueza para luchar contra el socialismo, contra el estatismo y... Entender que si eso no se hace, los socialistas siempre van a seguir intentando. Porque, ¿cuál es el punto? Como ellos intentan vivir de los demás sin trabajar, ellos son incansables en buscar esto. Porque su leitmotiv en la vida es vivir de los otros. Entonces ellos no ceden nunca en, en, este, en este mecanismo de apropiación de de la riqueza y del dinero o de la generación de ingresos de otro. Entonces, esa batalla tiene que ser dada de manera permanente. No se puede descansar, porque cuando uno descansa, el socialismo avanza. Uh, don't be distracted by the big mutton chops and that astonishing head of hair. This guy has strong beliefs and he's willing to say them no matter what. By the way, just a few days before his election, He was waving the Israeli flag. Now, I, I'm a fan of the Canadian flag because I'm a Canadian. I, I would wave an Italian flag at, I've, I've been to the Columbus Day Parade in New York City. I'm delighted to hold an Italian flag for that event. I went to the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I was delighted to hold an Irish flag. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a sign of disloyalty to hold a foreign country's flag. You just want to be, make it very clear that your heart is with your own nationality. I'm a Canadian through and through. I'm sure that Millet is an Argentinian through and through, but for him to make the statement of holding the Israeli flag was such a bold statement against the woke left pro-Hamas blob and mob. And for him to do that in the final days of his campaign is very bold. But this guy is bold. He reminds me a little bit of Jair Bolsonaro, who was elected president in Brazil before he was run out of there by the deep state. Here's Millet ripping off stickers and denouncing different government agencies. Take a look at this. Ministerio de Cultura, afuera. Ministerio de Ambiente y Desarrollo Sostenible, afuera. Ministerio de las Mujeres y Género y Diversidad, afuera. Ministerio de Obras Públicas, afuera. Aunque te resistas. Ministerio de Ciencia y Tecnología e Innovación, afuera. Ministerio de Trabajo, Empleo y Seguridad Social, afuera. Ministerio de Educación, Adoctrinamiento, afuera. Ministerio de Transporte, afuera. Ministerio de Salud, afuera. Ministerio de Desarrollo Social, Afuera, se acabó el curro de la política. I get a kick out of that. And you know, some reform-oriented politicians, they use a broom as their symbol. I'm going to sweep out change. Uh, this Argentine, he used the chainsaw as his symbol. Take a look at this guy.
character. And by the way, he is as audacious as Trump is. He tweets like Trump used to tweet. I, I mean, he, you just can't stop this guy from tweeting. He's tweeting Trump 2024. He's tweeting pictures of him in a constellation with other populist conservative leaders. He really is a phenomenon. And, and I find it uh, fascinating. I think in a way, he's the pendulum swinging back. For the last three uh, plus years, we have had Joe Biden. Um, Rishi Sunak is the latest Brit. Justin Trudeau. Until recently, Jacinda Ardern. Until recently, Angela Merkel. All these sludgy left socialist globalists, maybe you're starting to see the pendulum swing back in the form of Javier Millet. Um, by the way, uh, Joe Biden who surely disagrees with every single word <laughs> that Millet says, um, because he's a grown-up, or at least he works with grown-ups, he made a courtesy call to congratulate the new Argentine president. Here, <clears throat> this is from the White House website, readout of the call with President-elect Javier Millet of Argentina. So a readout is basically a summary, not a transcript, but a summary of a phone call. I'll read it to you. President Joseph R. Biden Jr. spoke today with President-elect Javier Mille of Argentina to congratulate him on his election. The president applauded the conduct of the election as a testament to the strength of Argentina's democratic institutions. Uh, the two leaders discussed the importance of continuing to build on the strong relationship between the United States and Argentina, on economic issues, on regional and multilateral cooperation, and on shared priorities, including advocating for the protection of human rights, addressing food insecurity, and investing in clean energy. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much Javier Millet uh, cares about solar panels, but that's not the point. The point is that Joe Biden was acting like a grown-up, and even though he probably loathes every cell in the body of this Trump uh, lookalike, he, knew, he knows he's got to be the bigger man, and he's got to call, because it's not just about a personal relationship. It's a country-to-country -country relationship. Argentina is a serious country, 45 million people, half a trillion dollar a year GDP. Uh, it's strategically important, and he's clearly a fan of the Western alliance. He's not a socialist anti-American, as unfortunately there are many in South America. So that's Joe Biden. Now, I spent some time digging around Canadian websites, the Prime Minister's website, the Prime Minister's Twitter feed, Melanie Jolie, the Foreign Minister's Twitter feed. No communication from Trudeau or Melanie Jolie about Yair Millet. Just like when Yair, uh, um, Javier Millet, just like when Yair Bolsonaro, the conservative one in Brazil, Trudeau was so petty that he refused to even congratulate Bolsonaro. He just wouldn't say the words because his personal vendetta was stronger than his desire to have a mutually beneficial relationship. Can you imagine that? Trudeau putting his own pettiness ahead of Canada-Brazil relations and now ahead of Canada-Argentine relations. Is there a country in the world that Trudeau has not ticked off? And I'm not saying that Trudeau has to be submissive to other countries. The opposite. Trudeau should carry Canada's national interests with him. But we're starting to see a, a pattern here, whether it's China or India or the United Kingdom or Australia or Joe Biden. Frankly, uh, I ask this question all the time. Other than Cuba, is there a country in the world with whom Canada doesn't have a weaker relationship now than when Trudeau took over? So that's very exciting news out of Argentina. But as I am t talking, right now they are finalizing the vote count in another country, in the Netherlands. And incredibly, 
Geert Wilders, it's spelled Geert Wilders, but it's pronounced Geert Wilders, the leader of the Party for Freedom, a party absolutely focused like a laser on stopping mass immigration and particularly Muslim immigration, he has by far won the Dutch elections tonight. Absolutely incredible. Exceed The polls in recent days gave him a boost, but he exceeded even those polls, winning 35 seats. And you can see the other uh, party seats count. Here's a quick uh, video of, here's a tweet in a video here, Builders celebrating when he was astonished, winning 35 seats. <laughs> Now, I actually know Geert Wilders, if you can believe it. I, I spoke with him. I went on a bit of a speaking tour with him about 10 years ago or so, maybe a little longer, across Canada. And this was when I had published the Danish cartoons of Mohammed, and I was talking about freedom of speech. And Geert Wilders was in a similar vein. He was very critical of radical Islam and mass immigration. And we toured the country and gave speeches together. And I, I'm not going to say we became close friends, but we were friendly, that's for sure. And I tell you, he incurred the wrath of the woke globalist Islamist left. Here's a headline from The Guardian in the United Kingdom in 2009 uh, that they literally banned him from entering the country. Imagine that. He was a member of parliament, and today he's prime minister. Or I don't, He's not prime minister yet. He has to do some negotiating with the other parties. In the end, he might actually not become the prime minister, he might do a deal with another party that is harsh on immigration. Perhaps the other party can be the PM and he might be the immigration minister. I'm just brainstorming. I don't know enough about Dutch politics uh, to know how it's going to go. But can you believe that? The United Kingdom banned him from entering because they didn't like what he had to say about mass immigration. Now, I should tell you later, they relaxed that ban. But the man who was disparaged for decades is now in the fast track to become, if not the prime minister, well, he's certainly the largest political party in the Dutch parliament. I should tell you that the uh, predecessor prime minister, Mark Rutte, is out. He was a tro he was really a Trudeau mini-me. He was a World Economic Forum globalist. He was for uh, all the global warming stuff, and he was also against the Dutch farmers. He hated carbon, but he also hated nitrogen. Wilders, as I mentioned earlier, is very pro-Israel, just like Mille. And um, here's a clip of uh, our reporter at the time, Callum Smiles, interviewing Geert Wilders about uh, the war on farming. Here, take a look. Mr. Wilders, what do you make of the, um, of the nitrogen emission reducing policies? What do you think the real story is? Well, I think it's it's leftish uh, rubbish. Um, the real aim here is to get rid of our farmers for some leftish nitrogen kind of agenda and to, to make room for even more non-Western immigrants, asylum seekers, and build houses and, and centers for them. And um, um, it's something that, that, that is totally different than um, the, the current elite um, is, uh, is uh, telling uh, the people. And when speaking to people back in the United Kingdom about this issue, they ask, why, why is this important to them? Why is the Dutch farmer issue such an important issue worldwide? Well, you know, there would be no Netherlands without our farmers, without our fishermen. Don't forget also our fishermen who have the same tough deal as the farmers get today. And they are um, who we are. They are in our genes. They are in our history. And Holland is built on farmers and fishermen. And everybody has a lot of sympathy for them. And now we get some leftish liberal uh, coalition, uh, probably also supported by the more extreme left 
left after the elections uh, that say, well, we, we, we really don't care about our identity, about our culture or about our farmers. We don't care. We find this nitrogen problem more important. Um, besides the fact that nitrogen is not um, a real uh, problem, it's an invented kind of problem. It's totally unfair to all those families, all those farmers that have been have had the, uh, farms um, uh, through generations. So it's not only the sympathy for the farmers uh, and the fishermen, but, but the Dutch people sense that they are getting to the core of the genes of our identity. And those those those, those parties that hate identity, that only want us uh, to go into some kind of, of, of European metro identity, but despise uh, the, 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 the patriotism, the national identity and the nation state, you know, the democracy and the nation state, and they don't care. And you see today here, uh, all, those are a lot of people for demonstration in the Netherlands that people are fed up with it. And I hope that they not only will come today to protest here democratically, but also even more important next Wednesday when they can vote for the provinces that in our country select the Senate uh, to make sure that the government um, will have to uh, step down and we have new elections. So do you think actually that there isn't an issue that the farmers need to compromise on? You actually think that there is no problem which the farmers have to address? Well, I don't believe so, no. I don't think nitrogen is a problem. I don't think the environmental issue is also the real issue. Uh, but um, um, as long as the majority in the politics that believe it, they, they probably would have to compromise. But the compromise means that most of them will have to finish their business. So that's that's not a real compromise. That's signing off uh, for having to, to, to leave your business and to do something else, to sell your ground. Um, um, voluntarily, but the government already said if it's not working voluntarily uh, we will we will make sure that you have to make it compulsory that we sell you out your whole business and we buy your ground. And that is not how a democracy should work. You know, We see it with the farmers but we see it also today with the asylum seeking problem. We see that the government is asking because they are not willing to close our borders for more non-indigenous people. Uh, 95% of them coming from safe countries, our neighboring countries that are not unsafe. So they are not asylum seekers but they are migrants. So they're telling now to the municipalities, please give more room, give us houses to provide for them. But then they also say that if you don't do that, later this year we will come with a law to put aside the local democracy and force you to give housing to those people. So you see on different issues, asylum seekers, farmers, that they are compulsory, going, setting aside the democracy, the, the voice of the people, and, and, and getting through what they will not have support on in the government. And that is something that I believe is totalitarian, has nothing to do with democracy and normalcy in totalitarian countries that that, 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 that local democracy are putting set aside and governments um, uh, make laws uh, to force upon uh, the people what they really do not want to do. And finally, do you think these policies come from Mark Rutte or Klaus Schwab? But I, I, I don't know uh, about uh, uh, Klaus Schwab. But, uh, I believe I, I believe that um, um, our government is the one responsible. They can be influenced by anyone. Um, um, but I have to deal. I, I cannot in Holland. I cannot have a debate with Klaus Schwab. I have a deba debate with the Dutch Prime Minister, and um, I want to give him get rid of him and his coalition parties. And if that means that that Mr. Schwab would have less influence, uh, that's very good. But I have to deal as a leader of position uh, with uh, the leader of the government and that is uh, fortunately not uh, Mr. Schwab but someone who um, is not that much better uh, Mr. Um, Rutte, uh, our Prime Minister. So now that man 
is on track to become PM or at least a senior uh, cabinet minister, senior power broker in the new coalition. Now, I, I actually traveled to The Hague, which is the Dutch capital, about six years ago for a half hour sit down with Geert Builders, and we covered a lot of subjects. I'm not going to play all half an hour of that for you now because we have other things we want to talk about on the show, but I will embed the full 32 minute video elsewhere on the website if you want to watch it all. But let me show you about 10 minutes of excerpts from my heart to heart with Kirit Builders when I visited Holland, uh, I think it was six years ago now. Uh, take a look at this and come right back. Do you think that Dutch people are inspired by the Brexit referendum and the Donald Trump election? Uh, does that give people more <coughs> courage to uh, dissent? Well, you know, it's what I call uh, the patriotic spring. People. Um, as I said, feel misrepresented by the current political parties, by the current elite, who feel that uh, multiculturalism, uh, mass immigration, um, Islamization, or the fact that we um, transferred our national sovereignty to this institution called the European Union in Brussels, and we don't even have the key of our own front door and cannot decide um, who we let enter into our country or when people should leave. Uh, people are fed up with that arrogance of the political elite, and indeed, um, and people see that in the United Kingdom, um, despite all the fear-mongering from the elite from both Brussels and London, that the economy would go down, that the, the lights would go out, that there probably would be a war in Europe, that it's not happening. The country is happening. A strong economy, uh, a free trade deal um, with um, um, the United States, probably even before the European Union uh, will have it. Um, so it's, it's far better than everybody predicted. And this, of course, is an incentive. It's not um, about uh, Mr. Trump personally or the United Kingdom personally, but people seeing that despite um, the fear-mongering from the current uh, political leaders, they can um, uh, take charge and they are stronger and they can put the faith of their own country in their own hands again. And that indeed, all over the European Union, is very inspiring. But the forces against us are um, um, very strong and growing uh, as well. Uh, I think that the greatest challenge to both Brexit and Donald Trump were not politicians, was not Hillary Clinton, but rather the media establishment, the political establishment, even the legal establishment. What is it like in the Netherlands? Are there any establishment uh, forces, any media that are supportive of you, or are they all critical uh, or overwhelmingly critical? Well, of course, there are few uh, exceptions, but 98% is very strong against. And the elite, as I call them, um, is not indeed um, only the politicians. It's uh, the media, it's also the top, um, the representatives of the, of, the, of the Catholic churches or other churches, um, it's um, the intellectuals, it's all the people who um, um, are really lost any touch with the common people and fear for their own position, um, are based um, and driven only by uh, multiculturalism. And, 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 and don't see that um, if we continue by, for instance, the Islamization of our society, that they will pay the first price, you know? I mean, this is uh, what at stake is at stake today. It's our mere um, existence that is at stake. It's not like we are facing an economic crisis that you can beat if you have a good policy like small government or lower taxes. No, it's the existential problem. When I go to America or Canada, I always tell my friends there, listen, um, um, you are bordering, at least the United States is bordering Mexico. We are bordering our continent that is bordering Europe is Africa. It's the Middle East. And the African um, 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 inhabitants, the African people will 
explode in this century. You know, they have one billion people living in Africa today. According to the United Nations, at the end of the century, it will be quadrupled to four billion people. Where at the same time, the European um, amount of people will diminish. So four billion people, one third of them, even today, is planning uh, to um, emigrate to Europe, which means that what we saw happening with the asylum crisis, um, with people from Syria and Libya um, coming to Europe, that we haven't seen anything yet. One billion people, mostly um, from Islamic backgrounds, will come um, to Europe in this century, which means that um, and Islam, once again, is not there to assimilate or to integrate. That is the biggest mistake we made, open borders and no demands on new immigrants to assimilate and to integrate. We will cease to exist. And the whole elite um, is not willing or capable because they invented the concept of multiculturalism and open border policy. Um, so they are, they are fighting it, but they are fighting against our mere existence. And um, the people are finally waking up because they saw in the last few years, both with the European Union and with the asylum crisis, that we only import more terrorism, more um, um, intolerance, uh, more uh, violence, and that it should stop. Uh, just coming in today, we landed at the Amsterdam airport. Uh, we took the train here to The Hague. You can see visually there's so many Muslim people, uh, women wearing hijabs, things like that. Uh, is it past the point of no return? E even if you were to win and you were to stop new immigration, how deep are the roots of Islam and the Islamification? What, what is the number? Is it even possible to win if there's a voter block out there that's yeah. against you? Well, in Holland, we have now approximately, um, out of a population of 17, one seven, 17 million people, 1 million Muslims, um, which is something like 6%. Um, and I believe it can be stopped. You know, um, um, as Winston Churchill said, um, never give in. Never give up, never, 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 ever do that. And it is possible, you know. If we should, um, not only for what is happening today, but what I just told you about what will happen with the explosion of the uh, demographics in Africa and the Arab world. Um, if we should finally um, um, close our borders, and as a Dutchman I have to say, we cannot do that inside the European Union because we transferred our sovereign right of immigration and um, um, our own border policy to Brussels. So we have to get rid of Brussels, as the United Kingdom did, to control our own borders again. And if we would do that, if we would finally decide ourselves who to allow inside our country and who not, and how long people can stay, and if we at the same time, for the people who are already in our country, would say, the good days are over. And if you adapt and assimilate to our values, our constitution, you are not only equal as anybody else, but you are welcome to stay. But if you start acting according to Sharia law and try to um, do, um, um, use violence or terroristic threats or whatever, we will strip you of the Dutch nationality and send you outside our country. If we would at least start those two things, um, then um, a lot of things um, really would change. Mm -hmm. The problem is more that if we don't do it, then we stay into the European Union. And once again, again, the European Union is not only incapable to close this border, but also unwilling. You know, and I'm not. I'm not personally blaming all those Muslims coming um, to Europe. Perhaps if I was a Muslim from Africa, I would do the same, to ask for a better life for myself and my family. But I blame the political leaders who allow them to come. This was the toxic combination of Europe in the last few decades, open border policy with not one single demand of assimilation and integration. And if you then 
don't get people from Mexico, but people with an Islamic ideology, and it's not only toxic, once again, it's a matter of our existence. We cease to exist, our culture cease to exist at the end of the century if we don't act now, and yes, it can be reversed, but we have to start acting today. Are there Muslim liberals, Muslim reformists, who support you? Well, um, um, some are, but they are more uh, former uh, Muslims, so um, apostates, people who left Islam. And then um, even there are not uh, too many. Within the Muslim community, there are some people who are um, a little bit tough, but uh, the majority is not speaking out. Mm -hmm. You know, I always said, after any attack, both uh, in Holland, when um, um, Theo van Gogh was murdered, but also in the rest of Europe, where were all those mass demonstrations of Muslims who um, should say, this is not our Islam. Mm -hmm. It's big silence um, every time again. Mm -hmm. So um, there are a few um, that uh, might be uh, vocal, but um, um, you hardly hear them. Well, that man, and by the way, he's tweeting so boldly against Hamas for Israel. He has said before that Israel is the canary in the coal mine, and if they go for Israel today, they'll be in Europe tomorrow. They're actually already in Europe in many ways. Is there a connection between the Netherlands and Argentina and the other countries in that um, uh, Javier Mille tweet of Georgia Maloney of Italy and other conservative-oriented populist leaders? Is there a pendulum swinging back? Well, I don't know, but it looks like it. Like I say, the whole world is in this mania of globalism and this leftist idea, this woke critical uh, theory that Hamas are the good guys and the West are the bad guys and violence is acceptable and hate marches on the streets of the West are, are something we should listen to. I think in a way, the fact that um, proudly pro-Israel vocally anti-woke, conservative populist nationalists like Javier Millet and Geert Wilders are having such success. Well, frankly, I find it a, a sign of hope that maybe the whole world has not gone mad. Maybe other people like you and I are very worried about what we see and we don't want China and Iran and terrorist groups to be ascendant. We don't want freedom to recede. We don't want the end of Pax Americana. So I'm, I'm hopeful for Javier Millet and Geert Wilders, and I'm very excited about their victories within such a close uh, time period. And uh, the ouster of Jacinda Ardern and Mark Rutte and the other globalists gives me a little bit of hope for Canada, too. What do you think? Hey, stay with us. Next, our friend Chris Sims from the Taxpayers Federation. So the day in Canada is what appears to be a terrorist attack at the Canada-U.S. border. Roads, border crossings all shut down. Statements by Ontario police and the FBI. It's an incredible story that will continue to follow. Rebel News' Efron Monsanto was actually the first reporter on the scene. But there are other things, of course, that we're following around the world. Um, an incredible result by Geert Wilders, uh, the head of the Dutch Party for Freedom, um, who has an astonishing win in the Dutch parliamentary elections on a platform almost entirely on one issue, 
namely to stop mass immigration. He is in first place there. But uh, we have to talk about other things because we are a full-service news organization. And one of the things that liberals are particularly bad at is anything regarding money. And it's not a surprise. Justin Trudeau himself never had to earn a living. He was a trust fund baby, never really held down a job. Substitute drama teacher and snowboarding uh, instructor aren't really jobs. They're more hobbies. And so it's no surprise that eight years into Trudeau's administration of our economy, it is a complete disaster. Joining us now is someone who knows more about this than most because her full-time job is to be a taxpayer advocate. I'm talking about our friend Chris Sims with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, great to see you again. Always good to talk to people from the Taxpayers Federation. Tell us about the latest economic update that the Liberal government presented. What, what did they say? So at the federal level, Ezra, uh, Prime Minister Christia Freeland usually trots out twice a year and presents a full budget, usually in late February, early March. And right around now is when they do their economic or budget update. So twice a year, they have to actually show their math and show their homework. Uh, it looks terrible, as usual. What's interesting, though, this time around, is that they're actually kind of sort of noticing that they have a spending problem. Hmm. So all this time, Ezra, every single time, they'll present the budget in March, and then they'll blow it by the update. Present the budget in March, blow it again. This time, they are indeed blowing it, but not as badly as they have in the past. So it's kind <laughs> of like it's kind of like you're in the drunk tank, and you're in there because you're drunk. But you're the most sober one in the drunk tank. Well, you know, I think that's a – you got to find the the silver lining where you can, I guess. <laughs> you know, there's just some astonishing things there. Um, I want to talk about two particular issues that aren't particularly uh, with the, the economic update. They're just news uh, around the same time. First is the bailout of Trudeau's absolute favorite interest group. There's a lot of interest groups, but the one that he is most dependent on and the one that is most dependent on him are regime media, the media party, mainstream media, legacy media. There's a lot of ways of describing it. I'm talking about CBC, CTV, and the newspapers, 99% of which take subsidies from Trudeau. And that's not, that's not an estimate or a guess. Over 1,500 different news media organizations in Canada take the bailout, which is actually like 99.8%, 99.7%. It's really astonishing. What do you have for us on Trudeau's latest gift to keep the media praising him? Yeah, actually, this was part of the budget update. It's mentioned right there in the document released by the finance department. So surprise, it's now going to be shoved through with that when this goes through parliament. So in a nutshell, it looks like they're doubling the amount of money that journalists who get the bailout are getting. So beforehand, on average, if a reporter slash journalist, newsroom employee, whatever you want to call them, was on this bailout money, they'd get around $13,000 per year of their paycheck covered by the Trudeau government. But it's way worse now because they're more than doubling it. It's going to be around $29,000 per newsroom employee for the next four years. So this was all supposed to sunset next year. It was all supposed to fade away 2024. 
surprise, it's not. It's now going to last them well past the next federal election. So this means that the journalists that are on the federal government payroll just got a huge bump in how much the government covers of their paycheck. And very clearly, <laughs> this probably doesn't need to be said to your audience, but this is an enormous conflict of interest. There is no way a journalist should be paid by the government. Pretty hard to hold the government to account when you're counting on them for your paycheck. So that's a huge accountability problem and it's a huge waste of money. So that's why the Taxpayers Federation, we're fighting this. Well, that's incredible. I just want to confirm the numbers because they're so astonishing. Yeah. You're saying that under this new regime, $29,000 a year per reporter is what the, the grant, the subsidy is. Did, you, did I hear you right? 29000 bucks per reporter per year. Is that right? Yes. So we follow very closely the work of Dr. Michael Geist on this issue and yeah. also our friends over at Black Locks Reporter. I'm right. sure you've spoken to them many times. They crunch the numbers on this and it's around $29,000 a piece. Now, For keep in mind. years, that's, a that's, that's an incredible subsidy. That's just astonishing. It is so absolutely a bribe, Chris. There's no other way to say it. That is stuffing $100 bills in the pockets of journalists who cover Trudeau. That's incredible. It is. And you and I have worked in this industry for a long time, often together, Ezra. And there was a stat that came out just in the last few months. Well over 60% of Canadians now think that journalists are purposefully trying to mislead them with statements they know to be false. Right. So not just a mistake, right. a typo here and there. No, no. The vast majority of Canadians now think that they're being deliberately misled. Right. Well, I mean, if any other sugar daddy were giving reporters 29 grand a year, it would have to be disclosed. Uh, and by the way, you can label it as an ad, like when a car company or I don't I don't it's illegal to have cigarette ads. But let's say an alcohol, let's say a beer company. If a beer company was advertising and giving the equivalent of 29 grand per reporter per year, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem if it was marked ad and if they mm -hmm. actually got value for money. By the way, if you had nothing but beer ads and you were doing very pro-beer news reporting, people would naturally say, huh, that seems a little bit you know, a little bit iffy. That's why when Pfizer and the other drug companies pour billions into, into media, people raise an eyebrow. But the crazy thing about the 29 grand per year per reporter from Trudeau is the government doesn't get ads. They're buying something else. They're buying the loyalty of these reporters, but at least the beer company shows that they're paying so you but th there is no disclaimer under a journalist after he or she praises Trudeau saying disclaimer this reporter received 29 grand from Trudeau it is so unethical and we would know that if it was a tobacco company an alcohol company a firearms company an oil company any other lobbyist would have to disclose it Trudeau keeps it a secret if you didn't watch this program or if you didn't if you weren't a self-educated critic of the system, you would never know because the reporters themselves are not going to tell you. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, We've tried filing FOIs on this to find out exactly who's on the payroll, but the most of them look like there are. And keep in mind, there's two things here. One, this doesn't even touch the CBC. 
We're talking about reporters right. outside of the CDC right, here. Right, right. Also, you're mentioning advertising. This amount of money doesn't even come close to the amount of advertising right. that the government... The advertising is on top of this. Holy yes. cow. So it's even worse and more. You so know, I, I saw a press release from the government today that they talked about keeping Canadian journalists strong and independent. You don't make someone independent by paying them a bribe. That's how you make them dependent. Yeah, so the minister responsible yesterday actually said, Ezra, uh, we value a free press. Like... Well, by paying them. Orwell is rolling in his yeah, grave right now. Yeah, grand a year is not free. Hey, I want to talk about one more thing because this media sure. stuff, I, I think it's important because we see the the world through media, so they filter everything and they it's a bias, it's a, it's a warped lens. That's why social media is so important and that's why the government wants to cancel, suspend, uh, shape, ban... Uh, social media because it's our way to get around the regime media to the truth. That's why they're obsessed with blocking it and shutting down independent guys like us. But um, so it's important to talk about the media bribery. But there is, I think, what's probably the largest corporate welfare in Canadian history. I'd, I'd have to check the stats on that. It's a plan to build electric vehicle batteries in Canada. And Trudeau, and one must also acknowledge, Doug Ford, the alleged conservative premier of Ontario, are throwing not just billions, but tens of billions of dollars at these foreign companies to build their battery factories in Canada. That's, a, that's, that's terrible. That's a, an atrocious waste of money. But it just came out, Chris, that these factories will not be built by Canadians. They're importing 1,600 workers from Korea to do the, like, at least the, the rationale was, oh, we're building jobs, we're building an industry. <laughs> They're bringing in Koreans to, I, I like Koreans, by the way, God, no oh, beef for sure. the Koreans, <laughs> and good for them for getting free money from our idiot prime minister. I want to play for you a very short clip. This is a short clip of Francois Champagne, uh, uh, who is just one of the worst cabinet ministers, it sounds like he didn't bother reading the contract. Like, I mean, when you buy a house for half a million bucks, you read the contract because it's the largest purchase of your life or whatever. This guy signed a multi-billion dollar giveaway and he didn't even read what he was signing. Take a listen to his excuse. Look at this guy. You knew they were going to be temporary foreign workers. No, not necessarily, but I'm saying I'm not surprised that you would have transfer of knowledge no one has done batteries in, the, in North America before. He literally didn't. <laughs> he didn't know um, that <laughs> that the money would be going to foreign workers, not to Canadian workers. But when uh, when asked about this, he said, "No, no, that's the transfer of knowledge. We don't know." How, he was explaining. So his first answer was, "We." He didn't know. Then his yeah. second answer was, well, now that you guys told me what's in the contract I signed, um, I got a new alibi and it's a, no one knows how to make batteries in Canada. So this was a knowledge transfer. So it's still a really good deal. Here, take a look at this clip. Well, let, let's face, uh, first of all, let's celebrate what we've achieved. This is going to be a lot, one of the largest battery plant uh, in North America. Uh, we obviously want to maximize Canadian workers. I mean, this is obvious, and I've been in touch with the CEO of Stellantis yesterday to make sure of that. 
But what is even more important, I would say, is the CEO of the company who confirmed yesterday in the press that they, uh, their commitment to hire 2,500 workers to work at the plant and, and also to have about 2,000 construction jobs. So not only I've been touched with Stellantis, I've been in touch also to the CEO of Unifor. So we're working hand in hand to make sure that we maximize opportunities for Canadian, as it should be. Now, we have to understand this is a new technology. We've never done batteries in North America, really. So you'll have a few people, a very few people, selected people, who need to come to transfer technology because this is a new industry. But that being said, after that is to maximize the opportunities for Canadians. And that's why they came to Canada in the first place. But what guarantees do you have that they are actually going to do say maximize the opportunities for Canadians and not, will not continue to draw from temporary foreign workers to Well, do like I said, the CEO said it yesterday. You don't need to take it from me. It was on the record to say they confirmed that they'll be hiring 2,500 people. That's the CEO of the company who said that. And then they'll have 2,000 uh, you know, construction jobs, as we expected. And, and in the agreements we have with them, we always maximize local content. So for me, uh, let's not lose sight of the opportunity. There'll be a transfer of knowledge, but that knowledge will help us to make sure that this plan is one of the most uh, um, productive in the industry in North America. So uh, let's not lose sight of the big picture. The big picture here is that we landed uh, one of the largest battery plants in North America. Uh, we're gonna maximize Canadian workers. We're gonna have a transfer of knowledge allowing us to be successful for decades to come. Um, so, wow, we're getting all that knowledge for what is it? <laughs> is it $50 billion? I've seen $15 billion, I've seen $20 billion. What's the real number that Canadians are going to be on the hook for that in a contract that the minister didn't even bother to read? The last numbers we saw was close to 50, five zero billion. So again, that could jump up and down, but that's about it. And if you work it out, which my friend did, Franco Terrazano, uh, our federal director, it's millions of dollars per job. Like it's just draw dropping amount of corporate welfare. And this is always the clarion cry for corporate welfare of, oh, well, what about Canadian jobs? We're saving Canadian jobs. Oops. <laughs> no, they're actually importing foreign temporary workers to do this because they don't know how to actually do this. Be alarmed, folks, when you see these companies shopping their corporate welfare with their handout like this to all sorts of countries and them getting turned down. They always come here. And Trudeau always says yes, yeah. but we are not getting value for money. Yeah, he's the stupidest world leader and the easiest mark. You know, $50 billion is such a staggering number. That's 50,000 times 1 million. Yeah. So $50 billion, you could buy 1 million Canadian households a fancy SUV. Or you could buy 2 million Canadian households uh, a, a more modest car a $25,000 car, 2 million Canadian households. If there's an average of, I don't know, three people per household. So that would be 6 million Canadians that you could buy 15% of Canadian families, mm -hmm. their own brand new vehicle for this. <laughs> but Trudeau is just pouring it into making batteries for another country's company built by other countries' workers. I don't think I've heard a deal this stupid since, you know, the, the old timey trick of selling the Brooklyn Bridge to people. This has got to be the stupidest thing in Canadian economic history. I don't know. I mean, can you think of anything dumber than this, Chris? 
It's a heck of a lot of waste. And every time you hear a government uh, employee or a politician say one billion, because that's a really hard number, picture a hospital. Right. Picture a brand new, re- medium sized, state of the art hospital, because that right. costs about a billion dollars to build. Right. right. Incredible. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Stay on the project because. We can't rely on most journalists. They're bought off. So we got to rely on you guys because you do not take government money, which is why we like you. Keep up the fight, Chris. You too. Thanks. All right. There you have it. Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Stay with us. More ahead. I'm still blown away by that result for Kurt Wilders because I know in the last election he did very well in the polls, but in the last days uh, he underperformed. This, the opposite happened. He had a surge in the polls in the last few days, but he exceeded even that. That tweet of him cheering 35 seats, he was so astonished, so far ahead. Now, the second party, if I'm not mistaken, are the Greens. So he'll have to make a coalition with another anti-immigration party. And, and again, I don't want to overstate my confidence of, um, in my understanding of Dutch parliamentary politics, but there is another Dutch political leader who is succeeding, Mark Rutte, um, who is anti-immigration. In fact, she's a Turkish refugee herself who has a hard line against immigration. And that was actually the issue that broke Mark Rutte's government, that and the farmers. So this could be the perfect storm. And maybe Holland will be the first country to push back against mass immigration. Uh, of course, the question is, is it too late? Well, it, the very least, it'll serve as an example for other countries from Sweden and other Scandinavian countries to the United Kingdom itself. Very interesting news. And I'm pleased to say I spent some time with and interviewed the man before he became the leading politician in his country. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. Music